From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID-19 hospitalizations in Colorado are as high as they've been in almost a year, although nowhere near their peak last winter. The story behind the numbers from two intensive care physicians, plus they share perspective on boosters and flu season. Then our health reporter John Daly visits Colorado's vaccination islands. If that sounds like a tropical vacation, I assure you it's not. And later, even in fall and winter, there's joy to be had in the garden. We answer your questions about getting plants to thrive when it's chilly out, or simply preparing your yard or balcony for warmer times. Educator and landscaper Fatima Imad of Frontline Farming in Denver is our guest. We'll talk rose bushes, raised beds, and winter berries. This is Alan from Golden. CPR is just so worthy that I felt really good about giving up my car to them. I donated my battered SUV, and CPR was able to receive more than three times what I would have gotten for it if I had just traded it in. Learn how to make your own impact with the vehicle donation on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Hospitalizations for Coloradans with COVID-19 are the highest they've been in nearly a year. Still well below December's peak, though. Most of those hospitalized are unvaccinated. But there's good news, too. Case numbers overall are going down. Periodically, we check in with doctors to get a look behind these numbers. And we'll do that today. Plus talk boosters and flu shots. Kenlin Q is a pulmonary and critical care physician in Denver and associate professor of medicine and national Jewish health. Doctor, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Abby Lara is associate professor at the CU School of Medicine and is a pulmonary and critical care physician at the University of Colorado Hospital. And hello, Dr. Lara. Good morning. Happy to be here. Happy to be here as well that you're joining us uh, on a remote line. But Dr. Lara, can you give us a picture of what a local ICU with COVID patients looks like right now? Of course. Um, Well, I would love to be able to say that it is a barren state, but unfortunately it's not. Our COVID ICUs are quite full. The demographics are very similar to what we saw in the previous surges. Um, However, we are seeing an increased number of those individuals who are younger in age. The vast majority of our patients are remain unvaccinated, and those patients who are in the ICU and are vaccinated, they tend to be of general, um, in general, older in age or have an underlying comorbidity that decreases their immune system, um, exposure to chemotherapy, diabetes, etc. I think that this was uh, well illustrated by the. Uh, sad passing of General Colin Powell, for instance, who was vaccinated, as we read, but who had underlying health conditions. And that's being reflected in ICUs, you say? Yes, we do see the breakthrough diseases in our ICUs. Um, For those patients, they have a weakened immune system for a variety of reasons. It was a it was with great sadness that I read at the passing of uh, General Colin Powell. He was an amazing individual and 
highly influential and very much a voice of reason during um, very stressful times. Um, but I do think that it highlights that he fully vaccinated, had been boosted, undergoing treatment with chemotherapy for his underlying malignancy, and that weakened his immune system in order for our immune system to be able to fight off viruses or infections, we have to have a robust immune system. We cannot just depend on either just the vaccine or antimicrobials to help fight off infection. And then among the younger folks that you say are in the ICU, those are predominantly the unvaccinated? Yes, they remain the unvaccinated, unfortunately. Dr. Lin Q, can you give us an example of a patient you treated recently? Yeah, I would definitely echo everything Dr. Laura says in our ICUs as well. And the typical patient that I've seen recently has been between age 30 and 50. Um, Frequently, they were developing diabetes and didn't know it. And we made the diagnosis in the hospital. And that's the, um, the underlying disease state that seems to be, you, you know, the one that uh, COVID preys upon. Huh. They, um, you know, they haven't had the vaccine for a variety of reasons. And a lot of times it's not just, you know, a cry for freedom and don't tell me what to do. It's a lot of misinformation or concern or mental health getting in the way. So that seems to be the common theme and they tend to hang out at home a little longer sicker before they come in because they're young and healthy and, you know, their body can take more before they need our help in the hospital. I'd like to unpack a little of what you said there about why people aren't getting vaccinated. So you're not finding lots of examples of people saying, uh, you know, I'm standing by my rights, I'm not getting vaccinated. Uh, But people, you said, with uh, mental health issues, did you? Yeah. I've seen, yeah, so we've seen people who, you know, they're off their, you know, they're, you know, with the stress of the pandemic, they come off their medications and they start to make irrational decisions. And this is something we deal with in ICUs all the time, unfortunately, Um, whether we see it through poor decisions for, you know, alcohol consumption, whether they crash their car because they make poor decisions when they're driving. Um, And, you know, like I could think of a couple of my patients who, you know, had bipolar disorder, they went off their meds, they were depressed, they didn't want to do anything, they weren't taking their medicines, not seeing doctors, not getting vaccinated. And then unfortunately, they get COVID. And I think this goes back to... um why it's so important that those that can do get vaccinated because we have people who fear that it's going to conflict with their medical condition don't can't think rationally through the steps to say i should get my vaccine and we want to protect those people the same way we want to protect you know our young children who can't have the vaccine because it's not been proven for them yet, even though hopefully we have the data and that'll change soon. We want to be able to protect the Colin Powell's, general Colin Powell's of the world who, you know, have underlying conditions. And not all of those people even know that they have those underlying conditions. 
until after they get sick with COVID. Yeah, so as you explained with the wanna... patient with diabetes, which is fascinating, that that's right. what tipped the situation off. And what I hear you saying is that the vaccination is for you, but it is also for your community. It's also a shield in that way. And uh, Dr. Lara, I know that you in particular focus on health disparities, uh, certainly along economic and racial lines. Are those evident to you still at this point in the pandemic? Yes, they are. Um, I am the medical director for health equity for the UC Health System, and it's a new position that I've taken on in July, and I'm very excited to see the organization um, that has always had um, provided resources and support for these communities, but really putting a very tangible effort in um, lifting these populations up and the communities that we serve. And so for our our historically minorities minoritized patient populations, early on, we utilized our Spanish-speaking, our our translator services to do reach-outs for those Spanish-speaking patients in order to help provide them information for the COVID vaccine, as well as um, partnering with our community services and community programs to try to increase our vaccination rates for these these, um, historically minoritized um, patient populations. And do you see that making a dent? We do see that making a dent. Um, unfortunately, it's not um, it's not a hundred percent yet. I'm pleased to see that seventy two percent of Coloradans are immunized. Um, but unfortunately, we it's still not a hundred percent yet. But my um, I, I suppose my optimism is that we will eventually get there as people realize and recognize that this COVID pandemic is not going away. The infection is not going to go away. And vaccination is a very easy way to help prevent severity of the disease. It doesn't necessarily prevent the disease, but it can prevent the severity of the the disease. It can prevent mortality. And that's hugely important. And just to build upon what Dr. Linku just mentioned, it's not only for the individual to protect themselves, but also to protect the community. We do not live in an isolated um, community. And so we all should be able to work together to help support um, and protect each other. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with two frontline physicians in Colorado about COVID trends in the state. Uh, that's Dr. Ken Lin Q of National Jewish and Dr. Abby Lara of the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, COVID hospitalizations in Colorado are the highest they've been in nearly a year. And we know that there are uh, nurses and other healthcare workers who are getting burned out in the face of what has been uh, an unrelenting situation. How much do you attribute that to the Delta variant, Dr. Lin Q. Do you think if there hadn't been mutations that we'd be here today? I think if we hadn't had the Delta variant, we'd have just had another variant that we would have given a different name. And it's just the nature of this type of virus. Um, If the virus had magically stopped mutating and doing what it did, I don't think we would be where we are today. But that is not how coronaviruses operate. And so just like every year we still get colds because coronaviruses mutate and change, this virus is no different. It's just the big bully of the coronavirus world. So it, you know, causes a lot more disease. Dr. Lara, are you seeing healthcare workers 
leaving your operation and leaving the profession? Well, even before uh, the COVID pandemic occurred, there was an epidemic of burnout for healthcare workers, um, nurses, physicians, um, advanced practice providers, um, for a variety of reasons. I think it's been exacerbated to a degree because of the COVID pandemic, and it's affected everyone who works in the healthcare space. Um, but I think most in particular are those frontline workers. And I've seen people leave, yes, because of um, the ongoing stressors um, and the pandemic burnout. Um, but I've also seen some amazing stories and amazing relationships being built that have really focused on being able to provide the best care possible for our patients when they come into our hospitals and a commitment to each other as a multidisciplinary team, not only in the ICUs, but across every um, every aspect of the hospital, both in outpatient and inpatient. So although we do see some, some staffing changes and staffing turnover, and we will continue to see that, I think the organizations are working toward an eye to stabilize um, staffing in the hopes of preventing further uh, further attrition. I imagine um, that's uh, easier said than done. I want to talk just briefly about boosters. Frontline workers, older folks, people with pre-existing conditions who got the Pfizer vaccine can get a boost. And uh, we are looking at almost imminent approval, I think, for Moderna and J&J recipients. What about the idea of mixing and matching, Dr. Lin Q? Yeah, it looks like from the data that is coming out that mixing and matching might not be a bad thing, particularly if you were previously vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. I think the more important thing is just to get everybody their first vaccination and their second vaccination versus a, the booster, right? The booster is great. It you know gives us a little bit more protection, especially of those of us that are highly exposed but at the same time, it's not a substitute for getting everybody vaccinated. So um, if you're eligible to get your booster, if you're immunocompromised over 65, you're intubating COVID patients every day, you know, get your booster. But I think the bigger message that can sometimes get lost in the booster discussions yeah. is that we still have a lot of unvaccinated people that need to be vaccinated, both in the United States and abroad. For a complicated uh, set of reasons, as you explored earlier with us, Dr. Lin Q. Um, you know, scientists look to the Southern Hemisphere to presage what kind of flu season we'll have here in the North. Last year's season was relatively mild, due in large part to distancing and masks. Any sense of what this one will look like? And maybe answer that, Dr. Lara, in the context of these increased hospitalizations we're seeing for covid um, I think there was talk or fear uh, last time of a twin demic, you know. Yeah, so that's a that's a great question, and although it's hard to predict, there is very much a concern that we are going to have not only a, a difficult respiratory viral season, um, which is historically in the winter time. So, as you said, it was uh, minimal to delayed last year because of the social distancing. The surge that we are experiencing here in Colorado and across the nation currently is not surprising as um, the nation sort of reopened and we went back to schools, et cetera. So all of us um, 
in healthcare work um, in the healthcare spaces are thinking about and preparing for um, the possibility of a very difficult winter, not only with COVID, but respiratory viruses, including flu and other viruses. Is your message to get vaccinated against the flu? My message is 100%, please, please, please get vaccinated for the flu. Please, please, please get vaccinated for um, COVID. Uh, they can be incredibly protective, um, not only for you as an individual, uh, but also the community. And, um, and it will help to decrease the impact on our hospitals that are um, they're overloaded and busting, uh, busting at the seams currently. Any quick advice, Dr. Lin Q, for holiday gatherings as Thanksgiving and Hanukkah and Christmas draw near? Yeah, it's going to be a surprise to everybody, but my advice is going to be to get vaccinated. Um, <laughs> I, you know, when we, you know, humans were designed to be social and live with each other. And it's very hard to tell people not to get together with their families and loved ones. But for all the reasons we've already said, you know, people don't know when they're developing other illnesses. You know, people don't know who they're traveling next to. You know, the way that we can curtail the, you know, a rebound of this pandemic once again during the holiday season would be to wear a mask when you're out in public um, and get vaccinated. We saw how well wearing a simple mask stopped flu season last season, and we can do that again. And we know that the vaccines prevent severe disease both for influenza and COVID. So, so would you my have advice a, is... Would you have a big family gathering if everyone was vaccinated? Just quick. I absolutely would if okay. everybody was vaccinated. Thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate the check-in. I know it's a busy time. Dr. Abby Lara, we heard from earlier, Associate Professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She's a pulmonary and a critical care physician at the CU Hospital. Dr. Ken Lin Q, pulmonary and critical care physician in Denver and associate professor of medicine at National Jewish. Let's get some additional perspective now from our health reporter, John Daly. Take a visit to northern Colorado. For weeks, hospital ICUs and frontline providers have been slammed. We're not just full with COVID right now. We're full with everything. Dr. Diana Breyer is a pulmonary critical care physician at UC Health. She says patients need care, not just for the coronavirus, but things like car accidents and dealing with medical issues they may have put off, like joint replacements, heart attacks, and strokes. This time, I don't have worries about us running out of ventilators. I worry about our staff. You know, we are going into this with less staff than we had the last time. Some people have left medicine. Just a few miles away from where she works, it's another world. Obviously having in-person classes and sporting events for sure, people being able to attend that. It's definitely going really well. I I don't think we've had many problems with COVID. Those are students, Nicole Culver and Tyler Collins, at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. Administrator Blaine Nickerson directs the school's pandemic response. He says last fall, things got dicey. The week of the 15th of November last year, we had 111 positive cases that we were dealing with. And that 111, you know, all of their close contacts were people that needed to quarantine. This fall, in a week in early October, they had just 15 positive cases. The school requires masks in most indoor settings like classrooms, 
There's COVID-19 testing on campus, and vaccination is required, though exemptions are allowed. Nickerson says the rate is 85 percent for students, 91 percent for faculty and staff. Vaccination has really been the key to letting us get back to the normal college experience that people crave. And they're having that experience as Colorado's fifth pandemic wave is hitting. Hospitalizations and deaths are spiking to levels not seen in nearly a year. But UNC is seeing far lower transmission than Weld County, where it's located. It's the same deal at CU in Boulder. Students are back on campus. They're filling the football stadium. And classrooms where they're required to wear masks. Vaccination for students and staff is north of 95 percent. So I'd call us a highly vaccinated institute. CU's Kristen Bjorkman says case numbers are low and virus positivity rates have generally been 2 percent or lower, far lower than Boulder County, where CU is located. Last year, the university had nearly 3,800 cases in an outbreak. Since that was resolved in June, they've had no more outbreaks, and Bjorkman says this year they've had 91 cases. It's pretty stark contrast. Last year, the COVID-19 incidence rate for college-age adults in the county was high. This year, with students having gotten vaccine shots, it's much lower, she says. It's a kind of a nice showcase of what we could aspire to. We can get back. It makes complete sense that vaccination would have that effect. That's Ajay Sethi. He's professor of population health at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Last year, the virus upended the school year there, but this fall is better. That's the intention of the vaccines, to prevent people from getting the infection and spreading it. Sethi says that's thanks to vaccination, masking, testing, and ventilation. That's even despite the highly contagious Delta variant. It's really a cluster of a lot of different behaviors that contribute to cutting back the transmission of this virus on campuses. CPR examined coronavirus rates at colleges in Colorado and compared them to their home counties. In case after case, the same pattern holds true. High vaccination plus other mitigations equals low transmission. With a highly vaccinated population, we're not seeing a lot of transmission. We're not seeing classroom transmission. Lori Lynn co-chairs CSU's pandemic preparedness team. She says even on the Fort Collins campus, where there's lots of close interactions and congregate living in dorms and off-campus housing, it seems to work. And she says it gives you an idea that the state could have the pandemic on the run if more people got vaccinated. I do think it represents where we could be if we had higher levels of vaccination. Skeptics might say, yeah, well, that's college campuses. Maybe they're different. I checked in with Jacqueline Bonanno. She's co-owner of a Denver-based restaurant group with nine restaurants and a food hall. She says prior to vaccination, a restaurant would close when employees caught COVID-19. Prior to the vaccine, I mean, we were rolling through, we had several shutdowns. We were rolling through outbreaks at the restaurant. But last spring, once vaccinations began, she and most of her staff jumped at the chance and the group chose to require vaccination. Most employees got shots and stayed healthy. Bonanno says her restaurants have remained open and business rebounded. What the restaurant industry is going through in general is pretty striking and we are in a good place and the vaccination policy is part of it.
The group recently decided to require customers to show proof of vaccination, a move Bonanno says most applauded. It's our job to provide as safe a workplace as possible. That's why we have a health department. Last year, another workplace, the JBS meat plant in Greeley, was the scene of one of the state's largest and most deadly outbreaks of the pandemic. A sixth JBS employee in Weld County died from coronavirus. She had worked with JBS for over a decade and became sick in March. The 280 people at the plant have tested positive since the outbreak was reported back on April 3rd. At the start of the pandemic, pre-vaccination, coronavirus hit the plant hard. A year later, it was one of Colorado's first mass vaccination efforts. Today, hundreds of JBS workers were able to get their first dose of the vaccine. The company didn't respond to a request for an interview, but a representative from a workers' union did. It is night and day. That's Adriana Escobar. Her union, UFSW Local 7, says at least 70 percent of roughly 3,000 workers have been vaccinated for months. While an outbreak at the corporate offices remains active, the last outbreak on the factory floor was reported in June. Escobar, a union director, says the vaccination push has made a difference. I feel like it has, and we obviously hope that it continues to have a positive impact on everyone that works there. Absolutely. Vaccination prevents hospitalization. J. David Cowden is a pulmonologist with Banner Health. It operates several northern Colorado hospitals, which Cowden says are stretched thin. Overwhelmingly unvaccinated patients are those that are hospitalized and certainly those that are severely ill. Sixty percent of the state's population is now fully vaccinated, but Cowden notes that of those sick enough to be checked into his hospital and those around the state, roughly four-fifths are unvaccinated. And winter is on the way. I'm John Daly, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with your fall and winter gardening questions answered. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. An informed citizenry is at the heart of a dynamic democracy. Thomas Jefferson wrote those words more than 230 years ago. But it's especially true now as we face three questions on our statewide ballots for 2021. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News Director, and CPR News is here to help you be informed and participate in democracy. Even in an off election year like this one, we have your back. Come to CPR.org now for the 2021 Voter's Guide. Okay, there's a little snow on the mountains and the occasional frost warning down below, but that's no reason for gardeners to abandon all hope. So what's to be done to keep plants growing and to prepare for next season? We've collected your questions and ours for educator and landscaper Fatima Imad, co-founder of Frontline Farming. Fatima, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again, Ryan. Nice to be here. We got several questions about raised beds, those big wooden planting boxes. Here's Sharon McCreary of Denver. She says her hubby took on a pandemic project. Last summer, my husband built two large planter boxes for gardening, and they are large. They're about four feet by eight feet by two feet deep. And we grew a lot of vegetables and herbs in them and got quite a bit of produce from it. But gardening season is over and the produce is finished. And I'm not sure if there's something I should do with these planter boxes in the off season. Do I leave them to rest? 
Can I plant something that would tolerate winter? Plant a cover crop, add compost. A lot to unpack there. So can she grow stuff in these boxes over winter, Fatma? Sure, that's a great question and um, awesome to hear about all the growing that you all took on this season. It was a good time for it. So, of course, um, coming off that cold frost last night, too, what a great question. These cold and heavy snows that we might be getting doesn't really evoke ideas of gardening for most people, (laughs) but I appreciate that. Some of us are thinking about it. Um, And there are a lot of worthwhile projects that you can be doing during the winter, um, certainly to grow a little, but also to prepare yourself to transition into the next season. Um, The first thing is really knowing about what are cold weather plants that you can grow here in Colorado and being familiar with those things from um, foods and vegetables we could talk more about to shrubs and other types of perennials, things that come back every year. One of the important things, regardless of what we're doing during the winter, is to know that plants still need water in the winter and we deal with a lot of um, drought and low water during the winter. So if you are planting something, keeping your um, cold weather plants watered is important. Um, One of the biggest things in any type of gardening is really making sure to take special care of your soil, regardless of how hardy our plants might be to the elements, there's only so much that they can do when faced with really frozen soil. Um, If you're already using things like raised beds and even in the ground, think about using uh, cover cloths, so also called row covers. Hmm. It's not only for the farmer, but good for our home gardeners, and it can help add protection during the cold time and also give you some season extension when you're planting during uh, the spring. So think about how you can use these. We like to go to a local supplier, American Clayworks, here in the Denver area, but you can certainly buy fabric at Home Depot um, and use that. You can also use this time to take advantage of cover crops, things that will help rebuild your soil by adding nitrogen into it, such as clover. You can also use turnips and radishes that will help break up the soil for next season. And lastly, I think that as I'm heading winter, I kind of want to do like the plants and get some rest. So this is a good time for you to take it easy on your body and think about what you can do to prepare for next season and uh, start thinking about season extension for the spring. All right. You mentioned turnips and radishes. Gosh, I love a good radish with salt, I have to say. What are some (laughs) examples, though, of fruits and vegetables, if I wanted to continue gardening in winter, that I could plant? Sure. So, you know, during the winter time, we're not really going to be producing as much uh, fruits as we think of on like berries and whatnot. It's a good time to work on pruning um, your raspberry bushes back and thinking about hard pruning in the spring. But certainly things that are more cold tolerant in our regions would include root vegetables. So things that grow underground like carrots, turnips, beets, Um, And then, of course, cabbages and greens also are a good thing to grow. So your kales, your collard greens, spinach, Mm. there's a lot of cold-resistant cabbages. And then also during this time, we're 
you know, even though last night was cold, we still have some warm weather coming. It's a little bit later to be planting your bulbs and garlic, but I still think there's a window. Um, garlic is really planted in the fall and will start to come up for you in late June and July here. But onion family plants do really well with cold weather. So onion, garlics, leeks, chives, all of that. And then some perennial herbs are very resistant during this time, like horseradish, tarragon, and chives um, can do well. And then there are certainly certain kinds of shrubs and trees that you can think about during this time, like holly, juniper, hazel, mahonia, that are certainly colder, hardy um, trees that you could um, kind of maintain. But of course, again, whatever you're growing, thinking about mulching around your plants, they need that extra warmth mm. um, to keep the soil from freezing around them. And you can use leaves even that you're co collecting right now, uh, straw or mulch. Um, so I think those are the main things. And of course, again, watering and if you can access covering blankets like that. I know for us out on our farm, that cold last night was still hit our beets and root crops, but having that extra cover that gave it just a couple more degrees of warmth and protected it from the wind uh, helped it survive. So I want to encourage you to try and um, maybe start at smaller levels of what you might want to grow this year as it's getting late. And then really think about this time to prepare yourself for getting some season extension in the spring and collecting your items and fertilizers and things like that so you can hit the ground running as soon as we get that warmer weather pretty early here. I love the idea of using leaves as cover. It, just the idea that you can use what you have in a yard and uh, not just necessarily put them into bags. Uh, another listener question, this one from Jim Clark on Twitter. How often should you water mature trees in the winter? Yeah, that's a great question. And I appreciate it because um, there is a difference in terms of watering mature trees versus sort of your newly established ones. And we're really thinking that in the time of October through March out here, we should really be thinking about watering our trees, our shrubs, our perennials, um, and particularly thinking about what plants are really sensitive to drought and tree during this time. So woody plants with shallow roots really require a little bit of extended watering. Mm. Herbaceous perennials and ground covers, the things that you see trailing on the ground, can be really subject to winter freeze and thawing because, um, that cold will start to crack the soil and then expose the roots to cold and drying. So again, I want to encourage winter watering, but combined with mulching to prevent that type of damage. The main things to think about in winter watering and what's nice about our weather here is that you get some of those days that are really going to be above 40 degrees, even when we have severe drops. So first of all, Make sure to disconnect your hoses during the winter, right? Yes. You don't want pipes <laughs> cracking. Um, and even as a landscaper and a farmer, I've made that mistake where I've plugged it and then just kind of forgot because it was a nice day. So make sure that when you do winter water, um, that when you're done right away, just unplug your hose. Those temperatures can drop. You want to water when the temperatures are really above 40 degrees and kind of get out there when it's in that midday and you're getting a lot of um, sunshine to it. 
And then when you think about your newly planted shrubs and trees, um, we really want to try to make sure to at least water them twice a month during these times. And of course, paying attention to how much snowfall we're getting. But even when we get snow, it's not always that measurable precipitation. As we say in farm talk, it's not necessarily that that moisture is sinking all the way down to the soil. Mm. Sometimes just that water hitting up at the top starts to open it. So you really want to um, make sure to slowly water your plants. Sometimes I just turn it on a low trickle and put it on my tree and let it run for about an hour and keep watching it. Um, and then if you have more established trees, I want you to think about at least trying to get out there one time a month and of course, with um, all newly established plants versus older ones, newer ones are going to have more shallow roots. And so they need more water often. They're higher towards the surface. But when you have established plants, that means their roots go down really deep. So they have this ability to retain water longer, but they also need you to think about really refilling it and giving it a lot of water slowly to get down under to their roots. Fatima Imad, co-founder of Frontline Farming in Denver, educator and landscaper and professor and answerer of your questions. And let's get another one of those. Uh, from someone who doesn't have a lot of room to garden, here's Heather Becker of Denver. I do not have a yard. Like a lot of Denverites, I live in an apartment building and I am very lucky and have a patio. My patio also faces west, so I get tons of sunlight in the afternoon and evenings. So I kind of have a two-part question for you. The first thing being, what type of container is the best type of container, whether it's materials or insulation, to keep the root systems protected in all of the crazy weather that we have here? <laughs> and also, are there any bulbs or plants that I could be planting right now that would survive a harsh Colorado winter um, and bloom in spring? Thank you for your help. Okay, let's tend to those one at a time. What sorts of, of vessels, of pots, should Heather be looking for for her patio, Fatima? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question, Heather, and really kind of nuanced in already thinking about the fact that you know that your pots are going to freeze and the soil is, and so that can make anything um, growing difficult. Um, so it's sort of two parts. On the first question, I think it's how do we maybe protect things we have in pots um, if we're already growing on our patios. And so certainly we need to have heavy um, clay pots or anything that's really sturdy in that way to make sure that they're insulated mm. and keep the soil from freezing. So really heavy type of pots are going to be your best. Um, and then I think that the important thing to think about is how you place your pots at your home. So think about clustering your pots together, really keeping your larger pots to the outside and your smaller ones to the inside. Try to keep them under your eaves or um, covering if you can. And then once again, adding some mulch on that top layer will help your plants survive that winter and keep the crowns uh, warm or your perennial shrubs or whatever you have in them protected more from those drying winds and frequent freeze-thaw cycles that we really have in Colorado. So again, think about using straw, leaves, or mulch and trying to cover that top sort of 12 inches. So positioning your plants and your pots if you're trying to have them survive. 
as we, and that goes for bulbs as well. So I think really any type of bulb this would apply to, mm. to help them keep from freezing. Your second part of your questions around what might you think about growing in this, uh, in pots in this time? I think, you know, for having a patio, certainly I also want to say if you can bring your pots in or keep them in a garage or somewhere warmer, that's also helpful to help your pots survive through the winter. It does get cold. But if you were thinking, well, Fatima, I really want to have something pretty to look at on my patio and kind of <laughs> engage in that cycle, the, the popular plants that you can see growing uh, in the ground and in pots at this time, considering you're keeping your pots kind of protected from the soil freezing, are violas and pansies. I always think the name pansy is so funny for pansy flowers when they're sort of the toughest plants out there and take the cold really hard. So we always joke about that landscaping. You can also see a lot of people have mums in their pots right now in front of their doorsteps because that's a good cold hardy plant. There are plants like Galtheria, um, which is a beautiful winter berry. I kind of think about it as that nice holiday plant with the red berries that you might often see in front of houses as well in planter boxes and could be a nice touch for you, a decorative touch. There's also other plants that do do well in the cold considering you're trying to keep those pots protected like surprisingly lily of the valley or then the helleborus plant which blooms in beautiful colors and even takes it um, with snow falling on it. So those are just a couple, but certainly you can look for winter hardy plants in our zone five here online and find more and just consider those factors of why you're really trying to grow in your pot at that time. Having been called pansy not infrequently as a child, I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate the redefining of that. Thank you. And it occurs to me that, you know, many of us have the desire to cuddle in winter, and that's sort of what you need to do with your pots. H- huddle them, cuddle them together so that they keep warm. The eve advice is great. A roses question. Is it time to cut rose bushes back now, or should that be done only in spring, Fatma? Oh, this is a great question and one I'm always asked landscaping. It's really important to understand the answer to this because based on what region you're in, you're going to get varied answers. But I'm going to give you my specific opinion for this area and why that matters. So the best time really for pruning roses here in the front range is going to be between late April and Mother's Day. So really in the free in the spring and think about it as pruning your roses after that plant um, has broken dormancy and kind of after the final spring frost has come. It's important to understand that pruning can stimulate new growth. And if we are pruning too early, then tender growth um, risks being damaged during spring frosts and freezes. If you really want to get out there and do some pruning in the fall, what I would suggest is cutting off any broken stems right now that are clearly broken. Um, You can, uh, I think it's important still during this time to wait until after that first hard frost, which kind of felt like last night. Um, And if you cut back before this uh, hard frost, it can again signal the roses to grow when they should be going dormant. So Mm. just think about how pruning encourages um, that. When they should be going dormant. I'm going to pick up on those words because there's a bit of poetry in them. (laughs) 
Do you feel that you should be going dormant right now? Do you feel this is a time for rest or a time for keeping your nose to the gardening grindstone? Mm, Well, I do love gardening and all things plant-related, but as many people think of us as farmers um, having to wake up so early and do so much work, we have the blessing of kind of following the patterns of the plants and our mornings get later with the sunrise and we're kind of feeling ready for that downtime ourselves. I think also as frontline workers during the pandemic and this ongoing sort of crisis, we've been kind of out there and doing our best. And um, as we're coming into this next year, just really recognizing that our farmers and people need a little extra love and uh, rest, um, as many people in our communities do right now, we can see. Is the change of seasons a particularly powerful time for you in general, do you think? Oh, that's such a good question. I do think so. And I think that um, it's lucky that we get to mark them in the work that we do. But for me, certainly, and for many farmers, our life begins to shift uh, from that busy hustle and bustle from morning to night. As farmers, we're not only growing food, we're also doing the work of selling it, of connecting it to our communities. I think sometimes it's funny because in so many ways we say, well, when the season's over, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and we bracket a lot to the season being over, and then the season's over, and we're like, oh my God, there's so much to do still. (laughs) Um, But it's also a time where we get to be creative and soak in um, the beauty of our harvest, like sitting in a room surrounded by winter squash and knowing that we might not always be abundant in making money as farmers, that but we're abundant in food and getting to celebrate all the creative things like shining our gourds and painting them and having that time to seed save during this time kind of is what marks fall to me. And warm drinks and soup. And warm drinks and soup and shining <laughs> gourds. I just love it. Fatima, thank you so much for being with us again. Thank you, Ryan. My pleasure. Fatima Imad is co-founder of Frontline Farming. The Denver-based advocacy group focuses on food growing and education. She also teaches at CU Boulder and owns a landscape company. Soup gourds and maybe a little Edith Piaf, too. Okay. Retail took a hit in the pandemic. Just imagine what it is to open a store for the first time in the COVID era. Well, you don't have to imagine. CPR's Dan Boyce has been following one new business owner as she has adapted. Rebecca Moon feels like she's tried just about everything in the last year and a half to gin up more business different marketing pushes and special events. Just trying to do things to get people in the door and nothing working makes me not really want to keep trying. (laughs) We've been following Rebecca since she opened Moonbeam Clothiers in Colorado Springs in May of 2020, right as the first wave of COVID lockdowns were hitting. Her narrow downtown boutique holds a carefully selected inventory of high-end, environmentally conscious garments and... 
that's just not what people were looking for during the pandemic. I don't want to sugarcoat it because it was a really, really tough year. And there are definitely businesses that are absolutely still struggling. That's Laurel Prudhomme with the business advocacy group Downtown Colorado Springs. She says some shop owners may be barely holding on until what she describes as a make-or-break holiday season this year. Still, Prudhomme says in many ways, Downtown Springs is doing pretty dang well. Overall, we are net positive. Coming out of the pandemic, we are seeing growth. 20 downtown businesses opened in 2020, even with the lockdowns. 30 more shops have opened so far this year. And since the pandemic started, the number of street-level businesses that have closed? Fewer than 10. The important caveat is Prudhomme's organization gave out more than a half million dollars in grants to buoy those downtown businesses last year. Those and other efforts seem to have done what they were intended to do, minimize the economic damage from the pandemic. As for Moonbeam Clothiers, Rebecca is not actually closing down her business completely. Yeah, I decided to hone in on alterations and customer for like the future of the business. She'll now be putting all of her energy toward those custom sewing projects from a new, smaller space in nearby old Colorado City. She says her heart's never really been in retail anyway. In Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. You may only hear one voice at a time on the radio, but it takes a lot of people to do what we do. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.